Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to have Oliver Barnett with me from the London Clinic of Nutrition. Oliver has always been a keen cook, cook, and this led to five years of study in naturopathy and nutrition, which he supplemented with postgraduate courses studying metabolic typing, iridology, and herbal medicine. Oliver is considered one of UK's leading health experts and regularly features in printed and online media, and he lectures at top nutrition colleges in London and corporate institutions. The London Clinic of Nutrition is the UK's largest integrated and functional medicine clinic specializing in root cause medicine. They specialize in helping people with complex chronic illness and have a sound reputation in getting results where others do not through their collaborative practice. So welcome, Oliver. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, no problem at all. So let's get right stuck right in. I have a million questions and we don't have a huge amount of time, so I'll try and uh, it's, it's going to be intense. So first of all, um, can you just tell me a little bit about the way your practice is set up? So I mentioned there that a lot of the work you do is through collaborative practice. So do you, what kind of people do you have working in the clinic so that they all work synergistically? Now, the nature of the practice is quite, is quite unique in that um, you, a lot of pra- practitioners in the UK, regardless of what therapy they're in, tend to be working in isolation or in silos at a therapy clinic of, of some type or other. What we do at the clinic is that because we're, we're 12 clinicians and eight support staff, so especially amongst the clinicians, if we have a particularly difficult case, because they they only see patients, only see our patients through the clinic, we can sit down um, and have you know case uh, discussions regarding particular cases. So it's almost like sort of like 12 heads are better than one. So when we've got a particularly difficult case, normally between the 12 of us or even the 20 of us, we can find a resolution um, to the patient's problems, either via sitting down um, online over Skype. We've, we've even got a WhatsApp group, so we can just ask questions on a daily basis. Um, and I think it's that particular nature, having some really great minds in the team, and, and it's it's a very sort of it's a constant learning environment where we're, a we're like learning off each other, but also we, we we do almost weekly training, whether it's from laboratories or uh, certain companies coming in to do certain training for us, or even doing uh, lecturing ourselves to each other on particular topics that we're passionate about. So I think all of that together ensures that patients get 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 really good outcomes with us. So are those clinicians also um, MDs so that you can go into the the more kind of like, you know, investigative areas and diagnostic areas and even treatment areas that maybe a non-MD couldn't go to? Um, the, the, tre- the, the clinicians in the team are a mixture of uh, most of them are MDs and nutritionists, so naturopathic um, physicians. Mm-hmm. And we do have one. We, have, we do have two MDs, medical doctors on the team. So if we need to refer to that, then, 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 then we do. Um, it's a bit of a funny one because obviously in the UK, naturopaths are not considered primary care physicians, but in America, uh, they are. Um, so it's a slightly different system. Um, so a lot of the pra- naturopaths practicing in our clinic would be considered primary care in America, but they're not in the UK due to the legislation. Right. Yeah, that, that's actually a, a one area that I also wanted to address because um, functional medicine, which is an area that, that your clinic specializes in, is something which is extremely popular in America, but it's only just starting to make kind of really make headways in the UK. How does that fit into the classic NHS structure? Because oftentimes I get the feeling that perhaps because the way the NHS is set up and that people don't make you know, monthly payments as such. I mean, of course they pay for it, but the perception is sometimes that, that the NHS is sort of free because it's hidden in this national insurance payment. And so a lot of patients are very loath to go outside of the system. Um, how do you, how do you deal with that aspect of it? And if, do you find that a problem for your patients that they actually have to come to you privately? Yeah, I wish you could get this sort of stuff on a, on a national health type system. But I think the, the problem with, um, I guess, the National Health Service is that it's a great model for helping people with acute acute care issues. You know, if you have a car accident or you've got some emergency like an ectopic pregnancy or, or something like that, it's a great system. But the problem with national health service it's using an acute care model trying to treat chronic disease with an acute care model and you can't really use an acute model for chronic health problems so it's sort of like a firefighting model but it's not really firefighting you need for patients with chronic health issues so 
the functional medicine model is not about is more about root cause medicine rather than treating symptoms and i wish that type of thing was available on the nhs but i think that it's that if you look at the, the initial gatekeepers let's call them the gps you know you go to the gatekeeper and you know, you only have really five minutes with them if you're lucky. Mm. You can't really delve into someone's health in five minutes of a GP. And then that gatekeeper then may refer you on to a specialist. But the specialist you might, again, only have made 10 or 15 minutes with. But that specialist, again, will only be using either surgery or drugs, you know, drugs to palliate symptoms and, and surgery, you know. Um, again, which doesn't, even the surgery itself doesn't deal with the underlying cause of why you've got the symptoms in the first place. So it, it's not a really a very good model for, cro- for chronic care. And I can't really, I don't really see a future. Well, maybe one day there will be, but I'd love to see it. But I don't really see a future at the moment for the NHS offering root cause medicine for patients in an environment when you really need to spend a minimum of an hour with each patient. It's just not possible. No, I completely agree. And um, I mean, presumably you like a lot of uh yeah, not mainstream NHS physicians probably see people who are right at the end of the road of a very long journey that they have not had any joy with. So you probably end up getting really quite sick people walking through the door. Yeah, we do. We get a lot of, We I don't know, I'm not quite sure how it will happen, but we've built a reputation for sort of getting almost like a last chance saloon. So getting results when other, other clinics, whether naturopathic or conventional, don't seem to get results. We've managed to really get those results that others haven't. And we've, we've built up a very strong reputation for, um, for Lyme disease in the UK, one of the, well, I guess one of the go-to places for Lyme. Um, and we're starting to get quite a good reputation as well for dealing with um, helping people so, you know, support their journey with cancer as well. We've got a couple of practitioners on the team who, who do really well um, supporting patients with cancer. But I suppose, but even if it's not cancer or Lyme, it's still it still seems to be a lot of patients who've tried everything, even like patients, say, with digestive problems, you know, there'll have been maybe, you know, 10 or 20 different practices. And again, come to us, we seem to manage to find the knack to, to help them. Right. So let's dive in a little bit into interfunctional medicine. Can you maybe describe exactly what that is and what the ethos behind it is? Yeah, functional medicine, in my, I mean, this is purely my opinion, is is just a... I guess a more modern term for, say, naturopathic medicine, traditional naturopathy. And what happened was in America, a group of doctors, medical doctors, got together and they said, look, let's let's develop a system for treat, teaching medical doctors in a relatively short course, like a 28-day course, um, integrated medicine in 28 days. Yeah. And let's let's have a, an introductory course and then let's have different modules that look at one looks at the immune system. One looks at detoxification. One looks at hormones. One looks at cardiovascular health. Uh, the other ones look at what am I missing? Uh, I know I'm missing a couple out, but so they look at a number of different systems in the body. And let's try and teach it to doctors in a month. And they initially taught it over the course of a you could do it in a year if you if you were very quick. You could do it in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have some exams at the end of it. Um, and I think it's it's quite a nice course for doctors to do because um, it gives them a lot of insight that they wouldn't have had previously. Um, and that was in America. And then over time, it started to filter out into other countries. And obviously, it came to the UK some years ago. Maybe people started to hear about it about 15 years ago in the UK, 15, 20 years ago. And what you tended to find was the, the model was a bit different in the UK. It was primarily the, the nutritionists who started to, you know, to train in, in, in functional medicine rather than the doctors. But now there's a lot of doctors who've done the introductory course to IFM. I think worldwide there's over 100,000 people that have done the introductory course to Institute of Functional Medicine. That's a five-day course. Right. Um, and, I now, and I think there's now eight, but there's only 800 people worldwide who have done have gone through the full certification um, to be a fully certified practitioner by the by the Institute for Functional Medicine in the UK? I think there's only about twenty odd people fully certified. And you uh, guys are fully certified, which which me myself and one of my other team members is fully certified. And I would I think by November the majority of our team will be fully certified. So it'd be quite a nice thing. Maybe by beginning next year we might be the only. Uh, probably the only integrated health clinic possibly worldwide where the whole team is fully certified the institute of functional medicine um so in my opinion it you know it's a nice course for doctors because it's mainly run by doctors for doctors but my only my only caveat and concern i suppose is that um 
you can't really teach naturopathic medicine and integrated medicine in 28 days. So I think that the naturopaths and the nutritionists really do have an upper hand over the medical doctors because they've done it for two, three, four, five or seven years or whatever it may be. And you can't really beat a three-year course or a five-year course over a 28 days of training in it. So I just thought I'd just mention that. Yeah, that's a very valid point. So um, functional medicine, is there a difference between that and what's also termed lifestyle medicine? Well, I think lifestyle medicine is, is a very big part of functional medicine. Um, you know, I mean, it depends what you, how you define lifestyle medicine, but with the patients that I see in clinic, you know, far beyond, you know, using supplementation or herbal medicine or, or diet. So b- ignoring those three for the time being, I actually find lifestyle changes far more powerful than those, than, than those three, than those three probably put together. So if you're in toxic relationships or you're in a job that you hate or you haven't got any purpose in life, uh, very basic things like that. If you don't feel a sense of community, um, I find if you can actually change those things, that can be far more powerful with your health than taking any supplement or herb or changing your diet. So that's my, my, my sort of, uh, my version of what lifestyle, lifestyle medicine means to me. Yeah, and, and I was just recently um, reading several reports on, on blue zones. And I mean, that that's one of the major characteristics of blue zones is that it's not exclusively diet. It's exactly that. It's an incorporation into a community. It's a low stress environment, low toxin load, so on and so forth. So, I mean, ultimately, I guess human beings are just not really designed very well for modern life. No, it's, it's this multitasking. I mean, if you think that... I don't know. We've got very, we have run very busy lives these days. I and mean, if you look at, say, something basic like having a chat with your best friend on the phone, you know, especially if you're a mum, <laughs> you, might, you might be lucky not to have, you can have a chat with your best friend, your mum, but busy mum. But, you know, when was the last time you sat down, people sit down, and have a chat with their best friend on the phone, unencumbered? So they're not sitting there watching TV or dealing with an email or whatever at the same time, actually just sitting there talking to someone. I'm not saying people don't, but we're constantly juggling and multitasking. And, you know, this this element of present moment awareness, we're often living in the future or the past and not very, very rarely being present. Um, And I think, you know, so I totally agree with you. I think people just ideally need to try and just have that more mindfulness in, in in their daily activities. Um, and that can make, makes a big impact on health. Um, and also, when you're talking about the blue zones, obviously, the Okinawans in Japan, um, they have a word for purpose called ikagai. And they, um, and they view ik- purpose or ikagai as, as one of the primary things for their, their wellness. Right, absolutely. So let's dive in a little bit into the nutrition aspect. So what are what are the basic tenets of functional medicine? There is so much information out there, you know, um, on Google, you can drive yourself crazy because it's very conflicting. One people, one group of people will talk about the classic low fat diet. Another group of people are talking now more about keto low carb. There's the paleo movement. Where where does functional medicine sit in in that spectrum? Well, the whole point is there's no one size with functional medicine. There's no one size fits all approach. Um, so it's, it's tailoring dietary interventions to suit the individual. So if people have, say, got what we call cardiometabolic issues, i.e. cardiovascular health problems or metabolic issues like diabetes, then obviously there's certain dietary approaches we find that works better with that than, say, a patient who's got quite severe digestive dysfunction, let's say. Um, so it's really tailored, you know, tailored to the individual. Right. Absolutely. So um, do you have any kind of golden rules though? I mean, I know, for example, like Mark Hyman in the, in the U S who's, who's a very significant figure in the world of functional medicine uh, writes a lot of books. He's just brought a new one out about, about diet where he, he actually does lay down some pretty strict guidelines about, you know, what you should and what you shouldn't eat. So, of course, getting rid of the processed foods, the sugars. Do you have any equal sort of baseline recommendations for people? Yeah, I think that it's good, a good, very good way of summing it up. As, as, as being an old school naturopath, you know, I think we should try to live our lives according to the, you know, to the laws of nature as much as possible. Um, so when, you know, ultimately, just in keeping with what you just said, 
trying to eat food in its most natural state as possible. So if you look at a packet of something and it looks like it's come out of a chemistry set, then obviously, obviously avoid that. I think the, I think the public, uh, unless you know what you're doing, I think the public can find this very, very difficult when, when they're looking at stuff. But I think the, the, the simplest thing for people to follow is, you know, is, is it a natural food? You know, is it a seed? Is it a nut? Is it a fruit? Is it a vegetable? Is it, if it's, is it a whole grain if tolerated? Um, you know, is it, um, is it say, uh, grass fed meat or wild fish? You know, so those, those foods that I've just mentioned are obviously all natural foods in the, in, in, in the, in the environment. But then once you start getting into basically then after that, anything that comes out of a packet, um, is, can be a bit of a world away from that. So I think if you stick to the most natural, um, foods you can, that's a really good starting point. Right. But you don't have any specific sort of leanings towards one of one or other of the macronutrients, so the fat, protein and carbohydrate. Um, I do. I do feel that a lot of people do consume too much carbohydrates, um, especially if you look at, like, say, like, like the standard, what the people call SAD or the standard American diet, which obviously it's very it's, sad. Yeah. 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 Which is which is, um, you know, standard American diet is essentially like the standard Western diet. And people eat a lot of white foods, whether it's pasta and pizza and bread and that and that type of stuff. And it's this overconsumption of carbohydrates that, that that's driving cardiovascular issues, diabetes. Um, obviously, there's there's good carbohydrates like vegetables. I mean, even broccoli is a carbohydrate. But you know, it's a lot of more. It's more of the refined carbohydrates, and it's it's the development that we've had of um, a you know a, a sweet tooth over the years. I mean, back in the day, people eat, sugar was like a like a delicacy. You know, people actually paid in sugar you know, for certain things. And obviously, now that it's ubiquitous and it's cheap. Um, people um go to sort of sweet things quite you know quite um you know natu- naturally um and i think most people do tend to over consume a lot of say refined carbohydrates um and, and things that it's even things often that people don't even realize you know for example um i'm trying to think of a good example um you know people will switch say their sodas you know like coke and diet coke and they'll switch them for say um what they think is a healthier alternative, like, I don't know, like a, like a sparkling, you know, like healthy, like cold tea or something. Right. But if you, but if you look at the actual levels of sugars in them, they're actually still pretty high, you know? Mm. Um, and so people swap one thing or another thinking it's a better choice, but, and it may be slightly better, but still not, not still not massively better. If you see what I mean? I mean, in terms of drinking, I think people are much better off drinking, you know, like vegetable juices or smoothies or water. Um, the odd bit of red wine, I think is quite good. Um, what else? Coconut water, um, again, but again, even coconut water, again, depending on which brand you use has, has up to say eight to nine grams of sugar per hundred mil. So if you're having a 330 mil glass of coconut water, you know, you could be up to 30 odd grams of sugar. So, there are brands of coconut. There's a really good one, a King Coconut one at the moment. You can get in Waitrose, uh, which is only about two and a half grams per hundred mil, which is a, probably the lowest one I've seen on the market. So that's quite good. Yeah, um, I, I use them, um, um, often use almond milk instead of um, dairy milk. And uh, I find that you really have to read the labels because most of them are actually sweetened. It's quite difficult even to get a carton of unsweetened. That's actually an interesting next point. So what about dairy? What's the, uh, what's the opinion on that? Um, Yeah, it's a big topic that I'm trying to think where to go with it. Um, I think the, I think the, if you look at the evolution and, you know, we, we, we're probably, the, if you think about it, one of the only species that tends to, um, after, say, the nursing period, you know, to continue to consume another, obviously another animal's uh, milk-based products. And, you know, evolutionary-wise, yes, we have consumed dairy for a, a reasonable period of time. But then the problem, some of the problems I think you can get with dairy is that, A, I mean, there's a lot of things you can talk about. I mean, obviously, you look at the raw milk movement, a lot of people have things like dairy intolerances and things like that tend to get on better with raw milk. Obviously, with, with milk being pasteurized, not only does it get rid of the supposedly bad bacteria, it gets rid of the good bacteria. So you're not, get, so you're not getting any of the good stuff when it's, been, when it's pasteurized. And a lot of people do really well on raw milk. Other issues, obviously, with dairy are that because of a lot of dairy, uh, the animals that you're eating have been given growth hormones uh, and antibiotics, but specifically the, the growth hormones you're getting synthetic hormones into the 
uh, the, the dairy that you're eating. And then especially ladies who, t- who are tending to have uh, hormone irregularities. I've, I found, you know, historically over the years, when you remove dairy from the diet, that does improve uh, alongside the other stuff you're doing with, with, with women, um, their hormone function. Um, obviously, there's other hormones as well that get into the water supply. So again, if you haven't got a really good water filter at home, then you're getting synthetic hormones into the water supply as well. So I, th- I do find that dairy can be a problem for a number of people. And we do, we do elimination diets for patients where they'll avoid foods for, say, a month and then reintroduce them and see how they feel during that reintroduction phase. Um, so it really, it really de- again, depends on the patient. I'm not a fan of absolutes. No, that's uh, well. That's the whole purpose of the exercise, isn't it? That you actually tailor tailor the therapy and the program yeah. to to the patient. Yeah. About gluten, gluten is like a real uh, contentious subject because of the difference between gluten allergies, gluten intolerance. Is it a fad? You know, the whole leaky gut idea that 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 comes from gluten. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, gluten is, I think, is a lot. It's a real problem for a lot of people. Um, I, I mean, I've been gluten-free personally for about four or five years. I did the best test out there for gluten sensitivity, which is called Cyrex RA3 from America. Um, and I was negative on that test, but I still decided to avoid gluten because I think the evidence is sort of getting to the point where it's overwhelming that it's not particularly he- a healthy food to be consuming. There's now, I think, around about 50,000 research papers on gluten and in, on PubMed. So there's quite a good body of evidence of research on its effects on health and disease. Um, there was quite a landmark paper last year, which was completed by uh, one of the leading immunologists in the world, a guy called Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's a professor at Harvard in America. Mm-hmm. And he did a, a study where he looked at three groups of people when they ate gluten. He looked at um, people with um, celiac disease, people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity and just a control group, so people off the street. And what he was measuring was how much breakdown there was in the gut wall each time they ate gluten. So how much propensity was there to cause leaky gut? And he he expected to, to see different results between the three groups. But what he actually found was the results were identical. So what he saw was, was that actually every time anybody eats gluten, it causes breakdown in the gut wall. But the key thing is, the gut wall is only a few cells thick and the body has the ability to re- to regrow a new gut lining every seven days. Yeah. So what you tend to find is a lot of people would regrow the gut lining or and imagine it as a cheesecloth. So you get holes in the cheesecloth, but the cheesecloth would sort of reseal itself after say seven days, but in susceptible individuals, they would then the holes in the cheesecloth would become permanent and that would then in, 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 uh, start the process of what medically is called um, antigenic intestinal permeability or, or antigenic leaky gut, which then gives, so then basically the more gluten someone is eating, it's almost like throwing sort of like gasoline on the fire. Um, so there's just, there's a, a, a brief intro to sort of gluten and leaky gut. Right. And leaky gut, um, just, just to clarify, it's, it's a process where contents from, from the gut actually end up in the bloodstream where they're not supposed to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the body, and then sometimes, quite often the body gets, it's implicated in, in obviously most autoimmune conditions, uh, and in a lot of health conditions, to be honest with you. I think if people, if your listeners are into doing their own research in PubMed, um, the, the, you may not see the term leaky gut so much. They'll need to look for the term intestinal hypermobility syndrome. It's mm. probably the, the medical name for it in, in, in PubMed. Um, but it, 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 there's, there's hundreds, there's thousands and thousands of papers on it now. And, it, and it, we do see a lot of patients when we try to improve the gut integrity, um, their health problems dramatically improve. Right. And what, what role does the microbiome play there? Is that something that you also address? Because that's a word that's on everybody's lips these days. I, <laughs> I actually personally think that, that the studies ongoing are really going to revolutionise the way, the way that we do medicine in the future. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. What's your, what's your feeling on that? Is that something, do you test the microbiome? Do you do yeah, you it's, probiotics it, and prebiotics? Yeah, we, we do. We do quite a lot of stool testing with patients. Uh, which looks at the large intestine. We also do uh, SIBO testing, which is a breath test, looking at the small intestine. Uh, the small intestine test just looks at bacteria that's got into the small intestine, but the large intestine test can give us an indication of beneficial bacteria 
and un, unwanted, say, species like things like parasites or yeast or other bacteria. Uh, it gives us an indication of inflammation and infection markers as well. Um, the you know the thing with the microbiome is that is that the the best ways of feeding the microbiome are really through you know prebiotic fibers in the foods you're eating, like you know things like kale and asparagus and things like that. Um, obviously probiotics in in food such as a kefir or water kefir or kombucha which has become quite popular now um using raw sauerkraut so traditionally our ancestors had a lot of fermented foods and i think that's been lost quite a lot in the diet and fiber you know fiber is key you know if you look at paleolithic times you know the amount of fiber that we had in paleolithic times was, was you know, a minimum of 10 to 10 to 20 times the amount we're consuming daily at the moment um and people have this sort of um notion that fiber mis misconception regarding fiber people think well you eat like a lot of roughage like a kale salad that's going to have a lot of fiber in it but actually kale doesn't have much fiber it's very healthy but um if you want to get decent amounts of fiber in the diet you're better off having things like a lot of like two to three tablespoons a day each of chia and flax seeds uh, or using something like oats as well if oats are tolerated mm -hmm. um so i think people need to try and in increase the level of fiber in their diet to really support their microbiome um, something like the FODMAP diet, which is, uh, we'll, we're going to actually have a, a separate episode about that at some point, but um, that's a diet which is recommended for people suffering from irritable bowel syndrome. And those foods that are recommended that you leave out are exactly all of those prebiotic kind yeah. of ones that feed your bacteria. So what does an IBS patient do in terms of diet? How do they... You know, how, how do you address that system? Because I, I know that, for example, a lot of um, hypnotherapists um, have a, a large number of IBS patients because there's definitely a psychological component there as well. Definitely. From a diet perspective, what do you do with them? Well, you know, the FODMAP diet is quite well, well researched, came out from Monash University. And, and it, the thing with the FODMAP diet is it's only really intended for short-term use. So I, I wouldn't have someone on a FODMAP diet more than three months, personally, because you're, you're, you're getting so many foods that you, you can, that I would be good to put in the diet, you know, that, that are not there. Um, it, it is used in the NHS with patients, and some good doctors or gastroenterologists will suggest it. The problem is doing the FODMAP diet on its own, in, our, in my experience, is, isn't really enough in, on its own to resolve IBS symptoms because IBS can be caused by a myriad of um uh possible issues you know it can there's a very big proportion of ibs with with SIBO which i mentioned just a few minutes ago which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um quite a lot of people with ibs do have parasitic infections um people with ibs can have h pylori infections which is a bacteria um people with ibs there's, there's a big nervous system component like you mentioned so again doing sort of like cbt or even nlp can work or hypnosis can work really well um there's, yeah, there's, IBS can have a whole, whole number of causes, food intolerances, leaky gut. So I, 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 use the, I use the FODMAP diet sparingly with patients if I do use it. Um, I, I'll use it, for again, for a month or two, but not that long. Some patients, we might use the specific carbohydrate diet, mm -hmm. um, which has similarities to the FODMAP. Again, it's more, it's more I suppose, more not complicated, but probably has, is more restrictive than, than the FODMAP diet. Um, but it does keep in a lot of the vegetables that you you can't have on the FODMAPs on the specific carbohydrate you can have. So, and that's got good good um, uh, observational evidence in, in patients with things like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, and also often in, in kids in kids who've got who are on the autism spectrum have got ADHD and things like that. Um, as the specific carbohydrate diet can work quite well, or the the later incarnation of that, which is now known as the GAPS diet. Right. Um, what about supplementation? Do you, I mean, obviously that, that's very, uh, when, you, when you set up a program of supplementation, that's going to be very geared to the individual patient. But do you see a general, you know, lack of certain nutrients in people that come to you? I mean, in the UK, immediately vitamin D3 springs to mind. Um, are there things that, you know, people at home might want to consider just mm. supplementing in order to... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I'll start with vitamin D. Uh, it doesn't. You'd be surprised to hear that most. We see a lot of patients in Doha, Qatar, Dubai, California, supposedly hot countries, which they are. But their, their vitamin D levels are actually often lower than the people in the UK's levels because 
they're running, running from one air conditioned building to another um, and they, they're putting sun cream on, they're covering up. So their vitamin D is just as low as the UK people. And, and the, the real problem is, is that we're not spending enough time exposed to sunlight. And when we are exposed, we're covering up loads of sun cream. And actually, we should be spending at least an hour in the day, not obviously in peak sun. So actually, we get that vitamin D exposure. And in order to maximize vitamin D exposure, you have to have a good chunk of the body uncovered. So as a bare minimum, as a bloke, you know, you'd be in shorts and a T-shirt as a minimum, ideally with your top off as well. Um, so unless you're someone who works out as a gardener, let's say, or out in the sun regularly uh, with body exposure, you're going to find you know, most people are chronically low in vitamin D. Every single patient that comes into our clinic is low in vitamin D unless they are supplementing. So I, I supplement all year round with vitamin D. I think most people on the planet should be supplementing all year round with vitamin D. Um, and the level they should be supplementing at should really be um, a, a lot higher than the general guide, guidelines. I mean, um, you really want for optimal vitamin D levels to be between 100 and 150. Um, and even I supplement with 5,000 IUs a day. I was just getting over 100 uh, even on 5,000 IUs. So re- I've moved up to about 7,000 IUs now. So you can monitor yourself, obviously, by getting your vitamin D tested. So vitamin D is a problem and it's, it's a very important nutrient. And the next obviously important ones after that are, are minerals. So the soil is deficient of, um, in minerals and we get our minerals through the soil. So most people are magnesium deficient uh, and also zinc deficient. So again, they're probably the next two most important nutrients, magnesium and zinc. Um, if people use a high quality multivitamin and multimineral, then they should get reasonable levels of magnesium and zinc with that. Certainly zinc, maybe not high enough levels of magnesium. They, may, they probably should actually include an extra magnesium supplement in their routine. Um, also because magnesium is depleted with stress, and a lot of people are in these fast-paced lives, and your minerals get depleted quite easy with stress. Um, so extra magnesium in the form of a supplement wouldn't be a bad idea. And as a citrate, or does any any sort of magnesium? Um, again, the different forms of different things. So if people are having problems going to the loo and their bowel movements aren't as regular as they might like, then a citrate form as a powder can be quite nice because that helps, also works as a bit of a gentle laxative. If people's bowel movements are, are on tip-top form, then you might want to use like a malate or a bisglycinate. Uh, malate is probably better for energy production. Um, but the bisglycinate and the malate don't don't tend to um, to loosen the bowels at all. Right. The flip side of that, of course, is how does the body deal with toxins? Now, that must be also a major issue for for a lot of your patients. We're exposed to an enormous number of toxins. Um, I, you know, everybody's aware of the argument that goes on about amalgam in your teeth and the uh, the mercury leaking out to you know aluminium pans that certainly my mother used when I was a child. <laughs> Um, all of all of those sorts of things. Could you comment a little bit on on toxic load? Yeah, I mean, I think depending on what figures you look at, we're exposed to hundreds of thousands of toxins more than now than we were seventy five years ago, and we can't live in a bubble and avoid them. So the the, the real buzzword in in healthcare at the moment, in, and and certainly work, working with companies and in, and people looking at optimum wellness, is really about resilience. So what we need to do is improve our resilience rather than trying to avoid these things. I think you can do some avoidance, some very simple stuff, but obviously we can't avoid everything. So we can build the resilience up by obviously eating a lot, a very good a diet that's very high in cruciferous vegetables, you know, five to 10 portions of vegetables a day if people can, getting good rest, getting out in sunlight. Um, you know, there's now these really good mat-based mat or cocoon-based, like sleeping bag-based um, like infrared saunas, which I think are great. I've got one at home and I use, I go on my infrared sauna four or five times a week. Uh, and you just lie on it like a, like a mat. And that works really well for improving detoxification because of the, you know, the toxic world we're living in. Um, the avoidance, so there are some avoidance we can do. So we can make sure that the, we get the very basics right, that we're drinking a very clean water supply that doesn't have things like synthetic hormones in. You can get plumbed in reverse osmosis, remineralized, um, uh, uh, water filtration systems for the home for about five or six hundred pounds at a cost which if you think about the cost people spend on bottled water that's been sitting in bpa uh plastic for a long period of time and your daily cost of that really it pays for itself in less than a year so that's a very simple thing people can do to avoid toxins in the water supply 
Um, after that, obviously, you're looking at maybe getting your home to go plastic free. So you're avoiding the BPA and the other toxins in plastic. So you just use glass containers and you don't cook in plastic. You mentioned the aluminium. So you can, you can use obviously things like green pan, uh, which, which are, a green pan are quite reasonably priced. You can use those pans for cooking with, or you can use, if you're, if you're real, really into your cooking, you're a real good, good, good home cook or chef. There's some, there are some environmentally friendly black brands like, um, I think they're Danish and German, your SKK and Scanpan, and their nonstick surface is a pretty healthy nonstick surface. Um, doesn't have any of the nasties in it. Um, what else is there? Obviously, things like your tins. Most tins are lined with BPA. So if you're, if you're going to have think, the worst offender is probably coconut milk in a tin because um, BPA is, is, is binds to fat more than anything. Um, so when you have coconut milk, it's at its highest concentration. So your best bet is to have a uh, use a brand that uses uh, BPA-free uh, tins or just use your coconut milk from a carton. Um, again, you, you mentioned mercury. Um, mercury is ubiquitous in the environment. It's the most toxic substance known to mankind, other than plutonium, but that's man-made. Um, you're, you're, you're exposed to the environment. It's in the atmosphere. It's in the fish that we eat. So there's inorganic and there's organic mercury. It's in the amalgam fillings. So if you're of an older generation and you've had those silvery fillings in the mouth, or no, they may look black now, um, you know, they will have at least 50% composition of mercury. Um, so there's, there is quite, mercury is quite a problem for patients. You may be getting on, and I think, you know, especially with patients looking at, you know, serious chronic illness, whether it's Lyme disease, autoimmune disease, cancer, and things like that, definitely getting, uh, changing your mercury fillings to white ones is a good idea, but making sure that it's done with a biological or holistic dentist who does it in the safest way. Don't just go to your standard NHS dentist because they just won't, you can actually end up making yourself worse doing, doing it that way. Um, also, one other thing to bear in mind, and most people don't know this, is that when you go and have a white filling with your dentist as a standard white filling, those fillings contain BPA in them. So what you want to do is ask your dentist for a, uh, a filling that doesn't contain BPA. And that's especially important for ladies who have hormone irregularities or those people who have thyroid problems because um, or Hashimoto's because BPA binds to thyroid tissue. Wow. Gosh, I never knew that, actually. I, I certainly was aware that the white fillings were better, but I didn't realise about the BPA issue. Gosh, I just had all of mine done. So. Well, it's better, it's better than mercury. It's better than mercury, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what does is, what is a typical um, visit to your clinic look like for a patient? Um, well, initially, patients would contact us by email or by phone. They, we would then obviously have a uh, our inquiries team would speak to the patient to make sure that, a, that we can help them. Um, obviously, there is a, there's very little chronic health problems we can't help people with, given the fact we've got 12 clinicians. We can't really get involved with acute problems because that's, the NHS is better for that. And we do get the old acute call, and we just refer them back to their GP. So they have a 15 to 20-minute chat to make sure how we can help them and who's best suited to helping them with their needs. And they're booked in then with the appropriate practitioner. Um, they're then sent out some very detailed intake forms, which they can complete on their iPad or iPhone or computer, and they can save it as they go along. And that takes quite a long time. I mean, that will take anywhere from one, one hour to three hours to fill out those forms. They're very detailed. And they're about 24 pages long. Um, so that gives us a really good uh, information about their health. Um, and then they send that then submitted back to us before the pa- practitioner sees the patient. The practitioner can then review the, uh, those forms before they meet them. So we've got a really good idea about the patient before they even turn up at the clinic. Um, the practitioner would then have an appointment with the patient on the day, either face-to-face or via Skype, um, ideally face-to-face if we can. Um, and they would then work out a plan together, which would involve dietary recommendations, lifestyle, supplementation, herbal medicine, any other external referrals, say like a, a biological dentist or an osteopath. Um and then they probably recommend any testing, that like functional medicine testing um, that we think would be appropriate to try and understand some of the root causes that's involved with their health. Um, and then they'd agree on a plan. And then we would then write up that plan. And that plan is normally emailed to them within two days, uh, detailing all the recommendations. Any blood testing that the patient would like to do, we can do on the day with our nurse in clinic. Uh, and any sort of urine or saliva or stool testing, obviously the patient can take some kits home with them and they can do that from home. Um, and then the patient tends to have a follow-up every sort of five or six weeks to check on progress and to make any changes to the program that's, that's, that's needed. Great. So that's a, a really comprehensive thing. So um, the fact that you actually 
have to have some degree of testing potentially does that exclude a um, distance treatment Um, do people actually physically have to come into the clinic or is this something that you can address online um yeah i think that i think that we we do see a lot of people from distance some people come in for the initial consult even from abroad and what have you and then they'll what does continue online but there's a lot of tests that can be done from home so like i mentioned a minute ago obviously you've got urine you've got stool you've got saliva uh you've got hair you've got breath testing um so those are options for certain for a good number of things we can do. People can do from home, and then if we want to test in the blood for certain things, there are some labs that we work with that do blood spot testing mm-hmm. um, for certain for certain things. So there's very little that we can't do if someone didn't come into the clinic. That would be really that would basically really be a big sort of a deal breaker for their treatment or for the efficacy of the program. Right. And you mentioned at the very beginning what what sort of like the, the usual palette of of symptoms are or problems that but can you go through that again what 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 kind of patient is is best suited to to being treated by you um again anyone with any form of chronic health problem so we see uh, i mean you name it everything from uh, digestive problems to autoimmune conditions such as like rheumatoid arthritis or hashimoto's um we see a ladies with fertility a lot of fertility issues um we see a lot of lyme disease we see a bit of cancer patients um we see people with um think problems with uh, neurotransmitters um really any anything that people go to their doctors for that's a chronic uh, health problem uh, a lot of people with like uh chronic say hives or a lot of skin conditions as well eczema psoriasis acne you know really the full spectrum really of, of um an, an unexplained illness yeah you know, a lot of what we specialize is in, is in people just can't get answers anywhere and they don't know what it is and no one knows what's wrong with them or everyone tells them they're completely healthy <laughs> um you know, we, in your mind yeah you're in your mind um that's where we really excel in, in, in unexplained illness uh, we we do a lot quite a bit around mold illness that's a real thing that people are really not aware of is this illness from a mold illness and mycotoxins which are the toxins given off from mold um that's something we see a lot of as well interesting okay so i'd be interested from because of my background also as a as a hypnotherapist where how do you um guarantee compliance with your you know if you if you set up a regimen i mean everybody knows losing weight is good for them everybody knows stopping smoking is good for them but people don't do what's good for them so once you've once you've worked a patient up and you have a a routine how do you how do you support them um emotionally and mentally so that they actually can see this program through and make significant lifestyle changes yeah i think it's a good part of it is building the rapport with patients and i think when you've got a good connection with patients and a good rapport from the start and you can't if i'm being honest you don't do that it doesn't happen with every single patient but if you can do that with the vast majority of patients and that really helps with the compliance um and obviously being available is, is, is another thing. So we pride ourselves on, um, you know, responding to patients within normally within 48 hours, but often quicker than that. If you, we've got eight, eight support staff in the office. Again, we'll be normally respond within an hour or two by phone. So, and so it's, it's, yeah, I think it's being, being, being responsive. So I think a lot of, we see it for a lot of patients that come to the clinic. They've been with other practitioners, but it, it would often that the other practitioner they'd be seeing might take a week or two to respond to the patient, which is not, which is not great. Um, so we like to be, you know, sort of be very efficient and try and be the, you know, the John Lewis of healthcare. Um, you know, that, that's my sort of motto. Um, and, and, and if you build the rapport and, and, you, and you're available for the patient, I think that does make a big difference. And I think, and some patients need more support than others. So we, we, we work that out from the beginning. And if the patient wants, say, a 15 minute phone call once a week, then, then, then we can do that. Um, we are thinking of getting a health coach as well at some point to join the team. Yeah, um, I actually was just researching into into American health coach uh, accreditation because I think that's an absolutely brilliant program. But again, I you know it's hard to figure out how that would fit into the NHS system. Well, they would do. It. I mean, the Institute of Functional Medicine are doing one of them. They'll be doing one for a week, for a month, so for a year or so now. Mm-hmm. A health coach one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of our t- quite a few of the people on our team are health coach trained. So uh, we've got a lady called Victoria who's got a background in NLP and health coaching. We've got 
got uh, Alex Manos. He's really good. Alex is really good with um, again got NLP and, and coaching background. Got Helen. Got a long history of coaching, business coaching, and, and NLP and things like that behind us. So quite a few people in the team. Anyway, the clinicians, practitioners have got quite a good health coaching and NLP uh, sort of background. Anyway. Right, because, you know, I'm pretty convinced that, that health coaches in the future are going to probably become quite significant. They'll they'll be the, the middleman between Definitely. between patient and doctor. Great. Well, I know that um, your time is really limited, Oliver, so I don't want to take up too much of it. But I always do have a couple of questions at the end for my guests. Thanks so much, first of all, for coming on. I really acknowledge what you're doing. I love your work. All power to you. And uh, I hope this uh, this podcast interview ends up with a lot more people coming your way and asking for help because I think you really can help them. So um, if there was one thing that you could recommend to people at home that they could change in their own lives tomorrow um, that would really have a significant impact on their health, what would that be? Um, something simple, yeah? Something based, like a simple change. Something that doesn't need another person to to authorize it or monitor it okay um oh i'm gonna go there's lots of things but i'm gonna plump for a gratitude journal no i did not expect you to say that but i think it's brilliant <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm gonna plump for gratitude. there's a great one you can get on amazon called the five minute journal i love that one so people want to make a very simple change in their life get by the five minute journal it's 20 quid and literally the clues in the name it takes five minutes a day you write down in the morning three things you're grateful for. Uh, you write down uh, something you want to achieve that day, some positive affirmations. At the end of the day, you write down great things that have happened that day. And at the, and at the end of that, uh, you write down one thing you could have, you could have done better. Mm-hmm. That takes five minutes out of your day. And the research shows, you know, gratitude journals and journaling improves neuro, neuroplasticity in the brain, uh, improves your overall well-being. Um, so that, for me, is a very simple change people can bring into their lives almost immediately. Brilliant suggestion. And now my last three questions, which is that, you know, we talk here a lot about mind, body, spirit. And I sort of embody that in the emotions of and, and the ideas, the words of health, happiness and serenity. So how do you define health? What does that word actually mean to you? Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's about, well, it's like the old I guess it's the old cliche, you know, like you say, of, you know, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. You know, there's always that sort of cliche. But it's interesting when I go and do, when I need to go and do talks for companies, I always I start my talk to companies and I say, who in this room is in optimal wellness? Anyway, I can give her a talk to 100 people in a room and then like one person puts their hand up. So that's, 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 that's a real shame. You know, most people are not really in, in optimal wellness. And the question is. What is that? That's physical well-being. You know, do you physically feel well with no aches and pains? Do you have abundant energy? Uh, do you have really good sleep? Um, is your libido good? Um, is your digestion good? Uh, is your skin good? Does it have good luster? Um, you know, do, do, do your nails look good? Um, what else? Um, yeah, I think those sort of things, you know, do, you, do is your emotional mental well-being good? So are you free from anxiety? Um, yeah, all those sort of things. I, th- I think if you can say yes to all of those things, I think you're doing really, really well. Do you, and do you feel a sense, and, and do you feel like a sense of love, joy, uh, appreciation, thankfulness in life? Um, and I think if you can answer yes to all those, I think you're, you're doing fantastically. Agreed, absolutely. And what about happiness? How does Oliver find happiness? <laughs> um, I'm happy because um, I'm privileged and honoured to be doing the job that I'm doing, serving people and, you know, without going into getting into religion or anything like that. But I, I do believe that there's some sort of force that's guiding me doing what I'm doing. And, and you know, it's, it's a privilege to be helping people and, that, and, and to be working with the amazing people that I work in the company that we work with. And we have a very certain philosophy with the company looking after the staff really well because if we're looking after patients and we have to look after the staff we're looking after the patients so every day i have to sort of pinch myself and just give thanks you know that, that we're able to do this work and help people and, and, and have a really good team of people to work with as well so that that brings me a lot of happiness and you know spending time with my family my dog and um you know and, and being out in my garden so just yeah so things like that, that that's what makes me happy 
And the last one is serenity. I always think it's so important. It's a very forgotten word that, that we actually find a little bit of time during the course of a busy day to, to find that quiet place inside and turn the noise down. Do you have any specific practices or things that allow you to do that? Um, I'm a long-term meditator. So um, I, I, I've been, I, I practiced transcendental meditation for 15 to 20 years. Um, and I sort of mixed that up in the last year or so. I've been mixing that up with something called Kriya Yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, Kriya is the meditation that was sort of brought to the West by Yogananda and his, and in his book, um, Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogi. Which, yeah, which, is that great, which is a great book. Uh, I think I read it once a year. It's that good. Um, and I think if people are stuck in their lives and they want to see the ability of human potential, then they should really read Autobiography of a Yogi. And what's really fascinating, I only found this out a few months ago, is that Steve Jobs, when he died mm-hmm. uh, at his funeral, there was a little brown box that was given out to all the attendees at his funeral. And the only thing that was in the brown box was a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi. And apparently it was the only digital copy of anything he had on his iPad. Nothing else. (laughs) That speaks volumes in itself, doesn't it? Yeah. Great. Well, that's really wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to me, Oliver. There's a load of brilliant and golden nuggets in there for people to take away. And we'll put in um, into the podcast notes links to your to your clinic. Thank you. People can come to you and find out more information. Thanks again very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. So, dear listeners, I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I I did. I could have talked to Oliver for ages there's so many more questions we just have to have him back um if you would like to get in touch with him we'll put all of the links to his sites and everything at the bottom of the podcast notes if you want to find out more about functional medicine he has a brilliant blog on his website full of really useful information um if you enjoy what you're hearing here on london heal then please rate review and subscribe on itunes and also check out our facebook page at london heal which has always got episodes of the podcast pinned to there and additional interesting stories and news and notes. And also join us over on LondonHeal.com. Join our mailing list and you'll get a, a weekly newsletter, little newsletter, which has just got podcast details for that week. We're going to be moving into more extended podcast notes and also um, things in the newsletter that you don't find on our other channels. And also in the next couple of weeks, we'll be setting up a Facebook group so that we can expand our community and actually start talking to each other and exchanging ideas and asking questions. So it's all going to be fun. So come join us. Please like our Facebook page. The better and the higher reviews, clicks and likes are just Internet currency these days. So help support us if you think what we're doing is a good thing. Hope to see you here very soon on our next episode and wishing you all health, happiness, and serenity.